0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from
1: 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hi everyone, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey Max.
0: Hey Joris, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, I'm good. I went to a lovely little hike uh, today Ooh. and uh, spent some time in the sun and on the countryside, going up a mountain and stuff, so that's uh, always wonderful, so I'm in a great mood. That's great.
0: Who do we have on the 3D pod today?
1: Well, today we've got colonel jane freganor uh as a u.s air force uh retired colonel and he has done a ton of stuff uh before uh, actually ending up in, in in 3d printing so actually like you know we'd probably we could probably just like spend the rest of the podcast going over all the stuff he do, he's doing but he's been a career a listening now lot- yeah exactly <laughs> it's like it's insane really he's been over 24 years and this, uh, uh, as a leader and strategist at the Air Force and and cargo cargo deployment and all these kind of different kind of uh, operational things. Then, uh, he was uh, he worked for the Executive Office of the President and the National Security Council. He was a deputy executive, executive secretary of uh for the Bush White House, uh, and he did a lot of really cool stuff for national security affairs and all these kind of things during that time. And uh, li- later, he ran the 400 and f- uh, the 500. 21st Air Mobility Operations Group in Rotan, Spain, which is a 1,500-person you know, airlift command, one of the main airlift commands of the U.S. military. And then he was the director for plans, policy, and training and allied integration uh, of the uh, U.S. Uh, strategic Command. And then later on, he ended up working at Moog, uh, which we all know is like a big motion control company, which has a, a lot of stuff. And he ended up heading there out a manufacturing unit. After that, did some more stuff for Moog. And then ended up, you know, doing kind of a TechStars thing, and then ended up doing this Veritex. Uh, so, so Veritex is, a, a, you know, data assurance kind of company that has this thing called Fortis that is supposed to kind of be an end-to-end kind of protection for files for three D printing, but also beyond. So, so we have not even scratched the surface of what <laughs> uh, James has done. But, 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 uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast, James.
2: Well, thank you. Good to talk to you, Joris and Max.
1: So first off, after so long, you've been over 24 years in the Air Force. After so long in the Air Force, what's it like trying to be in, like, commercial business? Is it very different? Is it very strange?
2: Yeah, I mean, like anything in life, it's a a chapter, uh, a new transition. You know, you kind of close one uh, chapter and start another one uh, fresh. Uh, I would tell you the things I learned in the Air Force uh, carried over uh, into the commercial world very quickly, especially, you know, you show up at your first job and I'm like, what do you want me to do? And they're like, I don't know, learn about the company and, uh, you know, come up with something cool to do in the next three years. I mean, that was kind of the marching orders and, uh, and that's, it's kind of how <laughs> so nice I'm, and broad, nice and broad <laughs> yeah, marching yeah, orders, nice. <laughs> Come up with something that makes us money. But, uh, but, you know, in the, in the air force, I never had a job really where I was trained for that specific job. Yeah. I was a pilot. That was more of a skill, but, you know, uh, command or working in the white house or these other things I did, I had no formal training. It was like, I'd go figure it out and do it pretty quick. So you don't mess it up, you know? So,
1: okay. That's really cool. And then, and I think what's also really awesome is that you started in, in what well, you started flying C-17s or like, uh, like, uh, C-17As, this is a Globemaster aircraft, which is just, I happen to, I've just seen one once, but it's absolutely huge. Right? <laughs> um it's absolutely huge aircraft and that's how you got started right in the air force right
2: yeah i started off flying tankers uh kc-135 which is a 707 variant which is mm-hmm. coming up on its like 75th anniversary when it was it was first blown in like 56 but uh, then i moved into c-17s and it was a cool airplane because that c-17 585,000 pounds fully loaded out we it at 300 feet 300 knots totally blacked out on night vision goggles and land in the dirt or kick paratroopers out the back or, or whatever it might be but it is uh it's challenging. And, uh, you know, serendipity or not, I don't know, but uh, ended up having to be able to you know, do that in a wartime environment. Typically, we practice for wartime, but in the case of most of my career, we're at war with somebody. So uh, it was interesting.
1: Um, what was the difference to that? Because like you train and you train and train, you kind of hope it never will happen, but kind of it's like the whole point. And then all of a sudden there's a global war on terror right in the middle of your, your career. And, and what was that like? Did everything, you know, no plan survives execution. Was everything different than you guys thought? Or what was it like to actually go into combat with, after so long training, well, a different war, uh, you know? So I started
2: off, let me just give you just a little more context. I started off in the Air Force as an enlisted uh, man before I went to the Air Force Academy, got a commission, became a pilot. When I was enlisted, I was on a Titan II nuclear launch crew. Now, you practice, practice, practice for a war, but that's the war you don't want to ever happen. Yeah. <laughs> So Seriously. on the other side, when you're flying, you, you're honing your skill, honing your skill, hoping that one day you'll have to employ that skill uh, and be able to do it, you know, um, well. So it, it is different to practice and then actually go out and do the execution. As you mentioned, no plan survives execution. The, the, the knowledge you learn in the planning is, is what's valuable to you, right? So really what you find at the end of the day is, you know, the person who's got the best best ability to impact or be impactful is the commander on the ground. And often in the way communications are set up and, and whatnot, we have this, what we'll call a 3,000-mile screwdriver. Um, you know, we'll have a higher headquarters somewhere, in, in my case, back in uh, uh, Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, trying to drive the war when they, you know, aren't on the ground. They're not seeing the situation as it unfolds and so on. So um, there is a tension that exists there, and it's a it's a tension that exists because of trust and it's funny because everything i'm doing now is kind of in this trust business but but i learned a lot about trust uh in the air force and then tried to apply that to this commercial endeavor that i'm in now so
1: so and also there's this also famous saying like an army marches on its stomach and and the other thing is like this this air the c-17 Globemaster capability that's one of the things that a lot of uh, that and larger aircraft, any kind of like transnational, international kind of like cargo capability, something a lot of militaries, even like really comparatively big ones, really lack and something the United States really has. Um, You know, and how is that, how did that evolve during that that period? That, you know, being able to then, you know, first, there's a lot of stuff all of a sudden has to go to Afghanistan and Iraq and the situation is much more scary than than you anticipated perhaps.
2: Yeah. So, you know, those first missions into uh Iraq were interesting because we were flying out of uh, uh, Ramstein Air Base in Germany, and we are flying the long way around Saudi Arabia up through Pakistan, uh, then into northern Afghanistan doing airdrops above 25,000 feet, which is something we'd never done before. Typically, it's at 800 feet AGL or 1,000 feet AGL. Um, and then three-air refueling. So those missions from takeoff to landing were about 27 hours um, with a depressurized uh, period where you had to go on oxygen for two hours before you depressurize the airplane to drop the cargo out, and what we were dropping out at the time, if you remember, was. Um, stuff to enable our forces on the ground who are riding horses. So we we're dropping horse blankets, saddles, bridles, oats. <laughs> oh, Why? <wow. laughs> it was like it was like you would go to the you know the the country store in uh in Germany and and you know buy all their oats and buy all their t- uh, all their tack and everything. That was the stuff we were bringing in. Um, in, in addition to you know uh, weapons and stuff. But what we we're doing is we're doing these high altitude drops, and it's really hard to understand the winds and where the you know you, you have this uh, um, point that you want to drop from so that you get close to the the impact point um and we didn't really have a tool so we had to make this kind of this uh we used called the harper later to to calculate the heart but it was a couple of tents put together this program and we would um kick stuff out based on the position it gave us you know based on the winds all the way down the winds change from twenty five thousand feet down and so on and these canopies can travel but when they got to the ground the the terrain wasn't flat so they would roll down a hill or whatever their pallets and things so we started putting uh um GPS trackers that were on semis, but they were expensive. So we put, you know, one on there, but it would, it's line of sight. It might roll down a hill and not be looking at the satellite anymore because, you know, it's on its side. Um, so then we'd put two on there and so on. So we, there was a lot of learning taking place. Eventually we get to the point now where we actually have steerable steerable uh, parachutes that can get, you know get very very close but we were oh, like remote steerable parachutes well it, it steers itself yeah Do you still so, have
0: a person or no you just set it to steer and then it, it does everything. yeah it, it
2: knows the point it's trying to get to so uh oh but, but again cool. i you didn't know, realize talk, we had that yeah things are expensive we don't we don't go back okay. and make, we don't go back and pick these things up and reload them again you know what i'm saying so but so that that's where we got but these 27 hour missions were were tough on the cruise and uh in, in flying but um, we learned a lot in that war that we hadn't really planned for. Because remember, th- the plan before that was to fight the Russians in the Folder Gap, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, now we have to take all these tools we have. And uh, as Rumsfeld says, you, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. In fact, I was with flying Rumsfeld throughout the Middle East on the uh, uh, the days leading up to the, the war in Afghanistan. In fact, the night of October 6, when we launched the bombers and the cruise missiles. Uh, he was sitting next to me in the cockpit as I was climbing out of Uzbekistan, and uh, he looked over at me. And he goes, "People don't realize this is going to be a generational war," and, and he was absolutely right. Um, you know, because we had we had sons fighting that uh, whose fathers had fought, and so on. Um, so, it, interesting time, uh, very interesting. Learned a lot.
1: Yeah, definitely, I, definitely. And I, th- I still think this is the most bizarre thing. This whole there, you, there was always special forces initially. In the dagger, the Task Force Dagger, all these special forces and stuff are in in Afghanistan. It was the first American response, and what do they do? They go on in horseback. It's the like, it's, it's the most it's the most you got the most technologically advanced uh, uh, military in the world, and all of a sudden there's guys on horses, like you know, there's Green Berets and, and Alpha yep. guy and 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 you know and Absolute Delta Force name. guys
0: on horses. Yeah, couldn't couldn't ride a Boston Dynamics big dog in. <laughs> yeah. They
1: weren't ready. So <laughs> – yeah, that's crazy. And then, and through that period, I mean, and and I bet that the but that pacing must have been relentless as well, oh, because yeah. uh, you know the 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 big Russia, you know, you know, you were talking about the big Russia war. The big Russia war was like, you know, all the guys at Ramstein base that weren't in the air were going to last three minutes, right?
2: Yeah. That was the whole
1: idea. The expected tank commander life was three minutes. The expected, like, a, a, a Apache helicopter pilot was four minutes. It was that kind of thing. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you end up being in a mission where it's, like, like a, it's also been called the forever war, you know. And then for a period of, like, 10, 15 years, it's this relentless supply, 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 supply. So, you know, I would have to assume that the, the, the troops and the materiel was, like, very, really kind of under stress for that whole time period, right?
2: Yeah, it was. And that's really led me to kind of where I ended up with. You know, I was running an organization. I had 15 locations in 11 countries across three continents and doing all the airlift into that, you know, into that uh, AOR, area responsibility. And moving about 570,000 short tons a year, uh, 2 million plus people a year and doing about 65,000 maintenance touches. And it was those maintenance touches that really led me to understand, you know, the, the the dynamics of supply chain, and especially when you're flying older aircraft and, and whatnot. And, and um, when I later went to work at Moog, and they acquired a 3D print business in 2015, I'm like, you know what, 3D printing is going to be commoditized, but it's really going to enable this new way of doing business, this, what I'll call fourth modality of logistics, being able to do digital logistics, move digital parts to the point of need, and manufacture them, you know, there on it would be a 3D printer and other advanced manufacturing. So so it really helped shape, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, it helped shape kind of uh, my thoughts, uh, you know, going into the commercial sector as, as, as I transitioned. Um, so it was really, I, 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 like I said, it, all this stuff came together to to really push me to where I am today. Had I not participated like, you know, had there not been a war, had I not participated like I did and so on uh, with the logistics um, you know, I may not have ever gotten to these thoughts and uh, ideas that you know we're now commercializing. So,
1: yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. I think I think also the funny thing is that the perspective you were like the perspective you saw throughout this war was you went all the way from being like a pilot essentially. To managing other pilots, to then looking at things much more strategically, and then all of a sudden you were you're working in the Bush White House, you know, uh, right for the 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 totally like the, the 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 national leadership. So you saw this thing at every level, and you normally you know you wouldn't have a career that would be able to do that because normally the conflict is shorter, you know.
2: Yeah, no, that you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I started at the. Tactical level, worked my way up into the operational level. Then next thing you know, I'm at the strategic level, and you know my interaction with the president was was a daily interaction. Anytime he talked to, I, I had about 200 folks that uh, worked for the executive secretariat. I was the deputy. The executive secretary is a has to be a civilian according to Title Ten, and then the uh, the deputy can be a military guy. It could be military, CIA, state, anybody from one of the executive agencies. But typically, my position was a military guy. Um, probably somebody you heard of before that had my position a while back was Holly North. Um, So, you know, uh, but being with the president, watching the decision-making, you know, being with him when he talked to other national leaders uh, or international leaders, a really, really exciting time. Uh, I got to see, you know, tomorrow's news today. I used to tell folks, but, but beyond that, really got to see, you know, how decisions were made, how you could um, get the Congress and others to, to kind of, uh, you know, rally around an idea, even though it, it may not be you know politically uh, the idea that you know they, they, they want to be associated with. And, and so, I mean, it was just amazing. I used to go to the 7 a.m. in the White House was the chief of staff meeting, and, and we would go over everything that was going to happen for the day, right? All the political things that were happening, all the international things that were happening, uh, and lay out the strategies, lay out the communications plan. And, and you see this machine very finely tuned uh, moving forward with decisions. I mean, I was with the president on uh, the day that Lehman Brothers crashed. I was with him in the morning. Hank uh, Paulson walked in. He was the secretary of treasury. The president said, Hank, what's going on? Hank said, uh, Lehman Brothers is gone. Bear Stearns will be gone by the end of the day. The president turned to me and said, hey, get Gordon Brown and uh, Sarkozy on the phone. We need to talk about this. He turned to Hank Paulson and he said, uh, Hank, he said, uh, tell me what's going on. Hank says, well, it's, uh, you know, it has to do with derivatives. The president said, you uh, well, uh, Hank, explained to this, you know, the, the derivatives and the problem to me, Hank, goes, there's about five people in the country that understand the derivatives. And the president turned to Hank and said, are you one of the five? And Hank goes, I- I'll get somebody here right away. So it was, And not that Hank Hank was a genius. As was no, yeah, but still,
0: puts, Hans- a, puts a lot of confidence in the system. <laughs> uh, but,
2: you, know, you, know, people, you know, I mean, a lot of people come down on President Bush and say, you know, he was country and he didn't know anything. he was. I'm telling you, he was. Being with him every day, he was a very, very smart man. He just he wanted to be folksy, and that was the persona he gave off. But he was very, very smart man, and uh, he kept you know that day in particular, you saw the best of the president because he's got two wars going on, he's got this financial going crisis going on, and you know he kept uh, the boat going in the right direction on the right vector. He got the world rod around, got the discount windows open, kept flash cash flowing throughout the you know international uh, cash flows, and and really kept the world from just falling apart that day. Uh, I mean, and it was, it was ripe to do so. So, but to be able to have that view, that front row seat was absolutely amazing.
1: Absolutely. But but, but, then the other weird thing is that, Okay, this is thing. This is the buck stops here. Yes, it does, right? But but I think how do you cope with every day? There's a new crisis, right? Because like the stuff we hear about is not everything he's dealing with, right? Because there's a ton of other secret stuff, and this guy's done an attack there, and then we think this guy's planning an attack, and then this is there's all these all these other eventualities that don't end up coming true, either work you do or work you don't do or coincidence. And how do you like deal with this relentless pace of just like these all these decisions? Do you kind of become immune to it? Do you deal with it or Yeah, so it it it, it's kind
2: of like being in really choppy water and having to not swim to one side, but maintain your head above it is probably the best analogy. And you can paddle, 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 and run out of uh, you know steam and drown, or you can kind of drown proof, which is kind of where you float and scissor kick every once in a while, take a breath, then float and scissor kick, but you pace yourself, right? Um, And the days are long, and they go on forever. You could stay there twenty four hours a day. I mean, my average day was. 14 to 16 hours and, uh, you know, uh, in and out on the weekends, uh, you know, always have a suit in my car no matter where I'm going in case the phone rings and I got to jump into the, you know, into the role and be in the White House. I mean, just craziness all the time. Um, But you get used to it after a while and chaos becomes kind of the norm. Uh, But, you know, the the beauty of the whole system is everybody there is there to support the president, regardless of what your political – um, ideas are at the time you're there to support the president, and everybody jumps in that role, does the absolute best, doesn't say "not my job," I'm not going to do that, that, pass the buck or anything. They they go, okay, how can I help? And and that's kind of the mantra: how can I help? So when you work with a team that's able to do that, uh, it makes life a little more enjoyable. I mean, there was an eight day period in my life during that time, and it was supposed to be a one year job. I ended up staying for um, two and a, two years. Three, I guess three years at, at the end of the day. But but what it's supposed to be like is, you know, you work for that year, you burn out, and then you, you move on to another year. Well, when I got done with the first year, uh, you know, there's two wars going on, the financial crisis and everything, and they're like, hey, can you stay? I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll stay one more year. And then then it was, okay, now we have the election and we're going to have a transition. Can you stay? And I was one of the senior guys to stay for the transition the new administration. So so you, you have a responsibility. And it kind of derailed me off of my Air Force career at the time, but you've got a responsibility – to the organization, to the executive office of the president, regardless of who the president is, to to make sure that that's a smooth transition, and it it, it almost becomes a, a religious calling because you don't want to do it you don't want to be you know do it wrongly or be poor at doing it because the impact is all of us right the nation suffers um, if there's not a good transition and so on so it was it was challenging uh, I went eight days without seeing my family although I slept in, <laughs> although I slept in my bed. Now, people go, eight days, not seeing your family. That, that's not really the issue. I've gone months on months, but not seeing my family when I'm deployed. But I'm saying, I'm working in and out of my house, and I'm getting home so late and leaving. I left at 4, 4.15 in the morning every day, get home after midnight, uh, iron shirt, shine my shoes, and go to bed. You know, that was the, the drill, you know,
1: so, but yeah. But that not super intense. I mean, I think, yeah. when you're doing this tradition, do you even, like, do you have something in the back of your head? You're like, I'm trying to explain it to them, but I can't actually explain it to them, right? Because you can't, I don't think, right? Uh, mine, Whatever mine, you try
2: yeah, my neighbors. I mean, my wife kind of had an idea of what I was doing, but my, my neighbors, no idea. They thought I was like Secret Service or something. I mean, they knew I worked in the White House. I so was about it because I didn't want to have conversations with them. And, and then, you know, I had access to, you know, the most secret secrets. And you, you just don't want to even talk to people because you don't want people prying and everything else, you know. So, uh uh, they, the, the, on the upside though they do a lot of cool things for the families so for example you know they, we have a really nice christmas party where you're with the president uh they have events where the kids can come up and they'll uh you know watch a movie with the president and the, the first lady in the theater there or the, you know if you have like the easter egg rolls all those sorts of things that are going on it seemed like every four to six months there was something happening you could bring the family in and it was kind of a Uh, you know, a payback for knowing that we were working these long hours that they would, you know, kind of have these family events and allow us. And then, you know, when they had head of states there and different events, I would, um, you know, get extra tickets. I um, had what's called a hard pin, which meant I could be um, right up next to the president. I had a, when I traveled with him, I had a room either adjoining or across the hall from him. Um, And so there's just a finite number of hard pin uh, wares within the White House and then other people get soft pins for different events. But, but, because of that i had access to a a lot of stuff that most people wanted um and that kept the family kind of charged a little bit so
1: but i I could imagine that would be for the family that would be really really difficult period right i mean i think it's something like it must have been a really difficult step to take together that kind of thing right now kind of like you can't just keep saying hang in there for another week or something because it just takes a really long time right
2: yeah it's a it's a it's definitely a commitment you know but uh, you know, as, as many of the, the folks, you know, I did a lot of uh, airvac missions and stuff when I was flying and, you know, moved a lot of injured people, saw a lot of death. Um, you know, I wasn't in the war. I was in D.C. at that point, right at the strategic level. So there, there was a little bit of relief for my family there. They weren't worried about me um, going in and out of places and, and things that were happening at the time. So um, that was the trade off. So
0: which, which one was harder, though, I guess? Is it harder to be flying uh, into potential combat zones or is it harder to be knowing that, for at least four years, if not eight, you are you are in the
2: thick of it. Well, so so this is going to sound really odd, but when you have a defined enemy, life is a little bit easier because you know kind of where the enemy is. You know what they're doing. You can watch them and, and you know get intel and all that. In, in I hate to use the word enemy, but uh, well, so we'll use the word adversary or challenger on the political side at the strategic level. You know, you're dealing with, you know, your enemy that you're in combat with. But then all of a sudden there's all this other political stuff going on. You know, which way are the Russians leaning today? Which way are the Chinese leaning today? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your your close friends, all of a sudden they might say something against you. You know, maybe the French or somebody comes up online and says something. But you have to deal with that. And then internally within the U.S., you got the whole, you know, Democrat, Republican, you know, side of the aisle, elections, who's saying what, we're wasting money, we're doing this. Um, so it's much, it's not as clear uh, at that level, as it is at the you know operational and tactical level, when you know who the enemy is, what what the goals are, and what you're trying to do, so um, all of them have challenges. But I would say it's it's easier. Probably the easiest situation you can be in is if you're in, you know uh, in, in in a firefight or hand to hand combat. You know what you got to do. You got to kill the guy on the other side, right? So uh, the other. Right. Yeah, Very yeah. clear
0: objective. That is, you're that you're <laughs> aren't as
2: clear. You don't want to kill somebody because they said something. You need to bring them back to your side, or you, you want to influence the Russians or, or the Chinese or whomever to you know to kind of see things your way or to stop doing what they're doing or, you know, at least pause. It just requires a whole different skill set.
1: Yeah, but I think that's actually kind of interesting because the Russian deep strategy, right? That whole that that uh, deep operation stuff, a lot of it, that, that deception and that confusing people. And it's meant to really increase that fog of war. It's meant to make that operating environment for that person on the ground so confusing that they are that uncomfortable, like you said, you were, you know. So their whole, like their whole, their whole, their whole dogma is like, let's confuse the hell out of them. Let's do lots of stuff to confuse them, so they're they're perennially in this state of anxiety. And then we just wait until they make a bad decision.
2: Yeah. So I mean, you, you know, everyone knows no love lost between Afghanistan and the Russians, right? But but the Russians, I mean, politics is a. a, a, a Lever and hedge strategy, right? So we'll use China for example. Uh, you know that when the China when China pisses us off, we'll go do a visit to uh, Taiwan, or we'll have the Dalai Lama come in and visit us. You know, I many things that bug China, right? And the, the tit
0: for tat. <laughs> yeah,
2: and when we piss China off, they'll do something with North Korea, or they'll threaten Taiwan or whatever. So you know, it's this lever, uh, lever and hedge strategy. The, the Russians the same way. I mean, most of this stuff's done through serfets and, and whatnot. But um, but it's you can anticipate what's going to happen. You know that, hey, you know, we're going to have a visit with the Dalai Lama. You know, where do we bring him in? Uh, We're going to bring him into the West Wing uh, entrance. We're going to bring him into the North. There's not a front door, back door at the the White House. So it's the North or the South portico. You know, uh, who's going to meet him? You know, where's the meeting going to be? Is there going to be a dinner? I mean, all these sorts of things actually, you know, amount to something. That then becomes potentially offensive to the other side, right? So, so I mean, it's just there's just so much that goes into these visits, and I was responsible for for a lot of that. Like I said, a, a good portion of the staff uh, work for me uh, at the White House, and then, you know, the White House Situation Room lined up underneath us and, and some others. Um, but really, uh, just a very interesting time in my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I don't think I'd go back and do it again, just because uh, I've done it once. The toll is, you know, it's, it's a big toll on your family and on your personal life and everything else. Uh, I
1: don't, I don't need, I don't have an ego. I have to stroke. So, but the thing is, it must be really funny because I, I've, I've done a lot of these business things where, uh, where you know you you don't know that you can't say this or you can't put your chopsticks up in the bowl and you know but that must be a huge problem if you're if you're currently getting all these foreign people in and you you have to how do you guys there's a protocol person presumably that deals with all that stuff how do you guys make sure that you you know you don't end up offending the wrong guy by saying the wrong thing or giving the wrong person the wrong food all that kind of stuff like that uh, could be huge right
2: yeah i mean everything down to we're gonna have a picnic at Kenny Bunkport. And, you know, can we serve hot dogs and hamburgers and, and stuff like that? I mean, so, I mean, all that is considered, I, I will tell you, there was an event where there was somebody from the uh, uh, one of the Middle East countries was going to come in and their ceremonial uh, ceremonial dress had them. Uh, they have a little bit of a, a sword slash knife with it. And, you know, the question was do you have the guy take the sword slash knife, you know, not show up with it when it's part of the ceremonial dress. Uh, you know, I mean, secret service and others are upset you're not going to want somebody you know within arm's length of the president to have a weapon and so on and so forth so so there's there's things that you have to consider when you do things and, and and you've got to get back to what the reality is the reality is this person most likely isn't coming there to harm the president they're having a meeting right so so sometimes common sense has to dictate kind of what actually happens but these are conversations that that unfold and happen when these visits take place and you don't want to piss off your allies. You don't want to insult somebody. You don't want to say something or serve a food or, or or many of these things. I mean, all the way down to the toasts that are giving, they're all pre orchestrated. Everything's pre-planned. I mean, the amount of work that goes into these uh, events is amazing. Just a simple trip. I wish I could show you what it is, but there's a book with that you get for the trip that has every single minute choreographed in it. And it's for you. So I know where I have to be. You know, I'm going to be on uh, Marine One. I'm going to sit, uh, you know, seat four, seat two. I'm on Air Force One. I'm going to sit, you know, I've got a normal seat there, but I'm sitting in my seat or somewhere else. Uh, what car I'm in, I was always in car three in the motorcade, car three back left, car three back right as the chief of staff, car three front is somebody else, service agent. Then you got the SWAT team and all this other stuff. But everything's, everything's mapped out. And it has to be that way because – for all the reasons we just said one you want to make sure that you're able to keep the cadence going and the flow going two in the event that something happens let's say a motorcade's a ca- attacked um there are specific things that uh you know different cars do and different places you go and, and that sort of stuff so it all has to be um, very meticulously planned now how do you get that way well it's by not doing business with amateurs, and I'm not saying that um, pejoratively. I'm saying the people that are in that business have been doing it for a while, um, and uh, they understand exactly. They have relationships with the protocol people on the other side of the um, of the meeting table. Uh, you know, so they, they you know, there, there's these conversations, these deep conversations that go to, in the play, So
1: yeah, I noticed that because like uh, President, I think it's Bush Senior spoke at my high school uh, at one point, And I think it was like four months earlier, some Secret Service people showed up. And then like, two months earlier, they, they, they welded shut all the the drainage ditches things you know one of the manhole covers yeah. like and then and a week le- earlier a, a week before that the, the the people scouted the the roof again or something like this and it was just like this huge operation where where you'd have no idea there's so many advanced people going at that it's like and that's for every single trip and he was only at our school like for like half an hour right so it was just like every wow, trip is yeah
2: every trip is advanced i mean and uh the advanced teams are amazing and a lot of those folks that's not a full-time job they have a regular job that they're doing and they do advance for the white house so they'll go for two or three days to go to advance and then when the trip happens some portion of that team will be on the trip and then there's you know the ford advance and then there's an advance with the president i mean all that has to take place you got to go scout the hospitals understand you know what hospital you're going to go to if there's a gunshot room where the trauma center is who the doctor on call is look at his credentials i mean there's just there's just so much that goes into everything where are the police stations where are the firehouses where are this where's that you know so um, it's it's absolutely amazing. And then at the other level, if there's going to be protests. You know, um, where are we going to insert people into the protests to to monitor, make sure
1: you know. So so you know everything is everything is choreographed, everything, everything. That's great. And then to go from that, like, then you returned back to the, the the Air Force, and you ended up you know being the commander of the 521st Air Mobility Operations Group. Was that very different? Was that all of a sudden like much more slowly paced? Because normally it's like it's like a, it's like a 1500 like. Yeah. Uh, person thing it used should be a huge responsibility but i think it's, it's it maybe it maybe felt a little bit relaxing after what you did before
2: well it was the busiest air mobility operations group in the air Force at the time because because of the wars going on so so i mean they, they threw me from the fire into another fire but I will tell you having come out of the white house it there was uh, not the, the level of intensity um it couldn't couldn't be equal but I had a great team there and all these you know in the white house and others it's all a team sport right it's not it's not any one person. Everybody's there to support the mission. Uh, at the White House, the mission was, you know, support the president, regardless of what your political affiliation is. I was always a registered independent while I was on active duty for 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 a reason. Um, and then when you look at, you know, on the at the 521st, it was okay. The mission and that's support the troops in contact downrange, right? So we got to be able to get bullets, beans, all the supplies, people downrange as quick as we can, safely as we can. So so uh, you know, everybody pushing to get the mission done makes makes it a little bit easier. Um, I spent most of my time downrange. My family was lucky enough to live in Spain, right on the ocean, but I was mostly in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan at the time, um, making sure that we were moving, you know, in the right direction, getting things, getting things done. So.
1: And what was it like, by the way, the the daily life there? Because were you in like the green zone in Iraq all the time, or did you no, no, not out, out, out at the forward operating locations? So, uh, so you were like in the middle of like okay, so there was there was no subway. <laughs> No,
2: no, 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 no subway. And we're bringing airplanes in, people getting shot at and, you know, other stuff going on. So, I mean, I was, I, I flew in a, back when I was I was still flying at the time too. Uh, I flew to Mosul one night. This is back before they had gotten uh, um, Saddam's sons. They actually got him right across the street from the airport. There were some like condos there, but we flew in there one night and there was a firefight going on. And, you know, they were waiting to bring out some wounded out and we landed, you know, totally blacked out and sitting there on the ground, which you're a big target. And, you know, we got to say, hey. Got to get the guys, you know, on the airplane and they don't want to come out. And so we had to run in and grab people and bring them out and so on. But, uh, again, you just make it happen. Why? Because you're trained to do that and that's the mission and you work together as a team and you get it done and, you know, you have success. So
1: so uh, it's interesting that you spend a lot of time with the, the FOB thing, right? Because cause to me that's interesting because, like, the FOB thing to me is, okay, there's a lot of plywood, right? But it's 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 there's a lot of technology going in there. There's a lot of skew, right? There's a lot of items that are going into there. A lot of stuff has to be stored. But you can't really make it too big because then you have to get more people to protect it, right? And meanwhile, these guys there, like in some calculations, say that these people are like a million dollars. Like the soldier, the active soldier with the gun, let's say that guy is maybe costing you a million dollars a day because of how expensive the whole system is to supply him. And you maybe have like six guys to eight guys maybe – Working in the military to supply him and to protect the other guys supplying him. So you know, what's that like on a ground level? Let's say. Well, so you know, you're,
2: you're bringing up a point of asymmetry. So you know, we're fighting uh guys who you know want to convert something into an IED, for example, and they, they had quite quite good success, right? We had to change our tactics and our vehicles and everything else, which took time. Um, and yet, we had the best equipped army in the world, and we're beaten by you know people who are you know communicating with a cell phone uh and their intelligence are you know eyes on the ground and uh they're blowing up gas containers or uh or fertilizer or whatever they're going to make their bombs out of um and you know and having success uh you know being impactful and making us alter our tactics um so you know some of the lessons learned out there and you're seeing it actually right now when you start to read what's going on with the chinese and others you know this week the Department of Defense talked about this replication strategy, where we're going to we're going to spend a lot of money on a lot of very cheap, low expensive drones, so that we can counter in mass against the Chinese. Well, those drones aren't only going to fly through the air, but we also have to combat the uh, tyranny of distance in the oceans. So you know, maybe having submersibles and others. So all of a sudden, structurally, we you know, it doesn't it make sense to build a new aircraft carrier uh, to spend your money on capital ships, or do you want to spend it on these? Again, these I'll call them inexpensive because they're not three billion dollars to make, but they're still
0: low cost. low cost. Yeah. Low
2: cost. <laughs> um, but you know, do you, do you want to get? You know, h- how do you balance that? And you still have to be prepared to fight this capital war, it's of some sort with capital ships and airplanes and so on. Um, but so what you learn is, you know, you can't. You, you got to kind of have this all domain, all spectrum type of warfare image. Uh, or, or vision or strategy. You, you can't just have, okay, I'm going to fight folks that I'm going to have air dominance in the first day. We had air dominance the minute we flew into Afghanistan. They don't have an air force. They, they did have some missiles and things that we had to be worried about, but that's not the case if we're going to fly over China or if we're going to fly over Russia or, you know, you I Korea.
0: guess that, then it comes back to, the, does that mean that you think more of the future of warfare, so to speak, is in remote systems and not having these forward operating bases with people and the supply chain that goes behind it, but to be prepared to do that, yeah. obviously, because so, that's so, traditional warfare.
2: Yeah. So in 2014, I, I wrote a paper about the lessons coming out of this war and how we should prepare. This is why I was at Moog. How we should pre- prepare for what the defense industry is going to shift into, and in the, the big lessons learned. Remember, we used to talk about every day about guys dying in convoys. Right. So the lesson learned is we need autonomous vehicles because we don't want people dying, moving commodities over the road. OK, now we have the IED threat. So we need some sort of autonomous vehicle that's going to fly perhaps or, or, or ride in front or alongside or whatever that can detect and then mitigate these vehicles and so on. So and then all of a sudden you're like, OK, well, we can make this, you know, they're calling it mo- new mobility vehicles or, you know, they're, they're electrified or they're gas vehicles that are pilotless. Right. So they're autonomous. Uh, the word autonomous has got many different definitions, but we'll just say uh, in this case that they, they fly from point A to point B and they, they know that ground track and they fly. Um, but but that's what we needed to get to because we had a lot of people dying in between, again, moving water, moving gasoline or you know, what, whatever it might be. We shouldn't have people dying for that when we have the means to to do it autonomously so now through this evolution when you look at well now i've spent you know 120 million dollars on f-35 it's a very capable airplane but if i now make it kind of a mothership and and give it uh these autonomous wingman type of uh craft to fly with it that then becomes very interesting because now i can hit more targets or i can um do more damage in air to air fight and so on um so there is an evolution i don't think we're going to get the fully autonomous combat and then we also have to look at the domain. The domain shifted a little bit. So today, every single day, cyber is contested. And that's really why we ended up with Fortis is because you know, you're know you working in this uh, logistics space and you're lurking, uh, most of that's happening through a, a cyber domain and that's a contested environment. So when you look at how do you operate in a contested environment, um, you know there are certain things you have to develop. And we posited in the very beginning that you need to be able to operate in a zero trust environment. You need to be able to operate in a, uh, quantum resilient environment. You need to be able to operate with data assurance. And those were the three things that really propelled us into the development of Fortis. Um, and, and really what you're trying to enable, in the case of this podcast for relevance, there's a video that was made in 2015. Uh, a couple of universities around the world made it. And it was called Drone. I don't know if you guys have seen it, um, but it was a UAV. Uh, somebody goes in, uh, alters a, a data file, build file for a propeller. Unbeknownst to the company that owned the propeller, uh, they then move it to a printer. They print it. They then put it on a on a drone. It flies. The aerodynamic forces, um, because they've altered the, the, the propeller, they put some voids in it. The aerodynamic forces cause that propeller to fill, and then the drone crashes. And unbeknownst to the company. So they're going to spend months trying to figure out why it crashed. They're probably likely going to focus on material and the printer and the design. Nobody's going to get all the way back to somebody went in and corrupted the data because they have no indicator that that happened fast forward a few years uh in the 2020-ish there was a u.s university uh, that had a whole bunch of phd students Um, they wanted to kind of test a theory so they changed the data on uh, a part Uh, they made the part the part failed and the same thing, nobody came up with, well, the data was bad. They came up with, well, maybe it was a bad material, or maybe it was a bad design, You know, maybe the printer did something, so on. nobody looked back far enough, because the focus in the added manufacturing industry has been at the print head, right, in um, regards of the material you're printing. You know, so development of materials, development of processes, the angles on a build plate, uh, you know, how much structure do I have to have attached, not attached, how do I take it off, and so on. But it's been very focused at the part, not focused upstream. And that's where we decided to focus. It was upstream. We decided to focus on the supply side, the supply being data, how that data, whether it's the build file, slice file, um, the telemetry for the machine, whatever it might be, um, how that moves through the system and how it can move through the system. And you can protect it, you can detect if something's been manipulated. In our case, if somebody manipulates a file, you're instantly told it's pulled out in quarantine so that you're not consuming bad data. And then beyond that, you know, how then can you attach the provenance so you can see every single touch that's happened to that data? And that's what we then framed up in this data assurance Um um, problem, but but it all, as I mentioned before, stems all the way back to the to my military days of trying to get a part in Kyrgyzstan for an airplane, and when I could have built a part there if I had a printer, right? So um, I've said a lot. I'll, I'll let you guys unpack that a wee bit. So
1: no, I, I think this yeah, is really interesting kind of, kind of yeah. thing. But but first, explain Fortress a little bit. Like let's go a little bit more in the detail about Fortress. I think I think the 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 idea is is to me like. Yeah, it sounds it sounds really wonderful. It sounds like you need this, right? And we all know the Natons. The example here is the Natanz, like the worm that they used to to infect the 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 firmware uh, the, uh, on the Natanz, uh nuclear nuclear site, and that meant the, the the centrifuges started running out of the operating cycle. And then uh, they, uh, and now I was a Dutch person, it's probably not a good idea for me to go to Iran. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? uh, at the end of the day. So, so this is an, exam- an example that's been in the press and it's happened a long time ago now, where somebody's interfering in something that, w- w- that was leading in- into Iran's like, actual machinery. So, the idea that this is as a, everybody in the world knows this works, right? And 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 B, I think everyone in the world is, is, is looking at this, and I, th- I I I do think that that in that supply chain there's a lot of opportunities to track parts, to falsify parts, and all that kind of stuff. So, so I'm on board with this idea, but how does it actually work? Like technically speaking, yeah. so- I I'm on board. We need this, but how does it work?
2: Yeah, so it it really it's a shift. So it's you know everyone talks cybersecurity. To me, cybersecurity is a chain link fence. You put it around your house. It's really good at keeping dogs out or stray people out. Uh, If it rains or floods, you're not keeping any water out, right? So you really want to shift to the asset level. So what we've done is we're able to protect at the asset level. So let's just call it a part. So we have a part file, the part build file that needs to go somewhere. So at the asset level, we can detect if somebody has come in and even change the hue on one picture or one pixel of a picture one pixel and it maybe it's got a million in it we can tell right away they change a number on a drawing they they change a lowercase letter to a capital letter we, we, we notice all that and it what because what we're doing is we're taking these files and through our software we we create a hash and we're constantly looking at the hash If something changes then that hash changes, which then alerts you that, you know, somebody has changed the file. Now there's a lot of really good reasons to change a file. Maybe one is uh, revision or, or something. So, so not everything is nefarious, but what you want to do is you want to be able to detect. Now, you know, I've spent last night going through the news, looking for different, uh, stories about you know where this has been impactful the reality is there's not a lot of news about this being impactful because there's not people looking so so there are things going on that you don't know is happening because nobody's looking so it's hard to say well there's not a problem the reality is the new attack surface is data all right? I mean, the Chinese right now are doing this scrape and decode later when they have quantum uh, uh, ability that's more capable than the fifty qubits they have now. They're but they're stealing as much data as they can now, knowing that in the future they're going to be able to uh, decrypt that data and be able to use it. There's all kinds of plays around data, so you really, really, really at the asset level need to protect things. Before we're protecting things kind of in the environment level. You know, I've built this um, these processes and procedures for cybersecurity. You know, I'm doing these scans very broadly to look for uh, malware, detect things. It it needs to come all the way down to the asset, and you know, and it needs to be in a zero trust environment where you trust nobody. Everybody's got to prove who they are every time they transact, and and that's the environment that Web three demands. And everybody, I don't care if you're making shirts or you're making aircraft parts, you become a data-centric digital company because that's how we transact now. So that's that's how we're protecting the data. And beyond that, if you're consuming data, whether it's for an AI or an ML type of application or for decision-making analytics or for manufacturing, you're going to build something, you want to make sure that you are getting exactly what the sender intended you to receive, intended for you to receive. So that, that exact data. And there's... nothing that's telling you that today you're doing it on trust through um uh, people are using email i mean the department of defense does not have a portal to receive digital parts it's coming across on a thumb drive it's coming across on a on a uh, email which is not safe at all Uh, email is an attack surface i won't even open (laughs) it on email i mean so
0: i I mean that does raise a a real question though like everything's freaking connected and and it's and i know they're not supposed to be right like the the pentagon is not supposed to be connected to the internet right on some level um but it still has to be and and stuff has to get from one thing to another thing even if you sneaker net it with a usb drive you, you still can carry a virus across and then the next time it gets sneaker netted back across onto a web accessible portal then that data has it can be taken so to speak or that's conceivable
2: Yeah, so I guess
0: is there a solution for that, or is it? We
2: we can bridge an air gap like that. So I mean, um, the way we're set up. So at one point, though, you got to be able to talk to the internet, Uh, right? So so, so that's that's the challenge. So I mean, we use a a case in uh, uh, there was a 3D print company, uh, Dutch 3D print company. They got some files sent to one of their designers. Uh, He had to put them on a thumb drive, get on his bicycle, and ride over to the to the printing facility because he didn't trust that if he sent it over there that it was going to be exactly what he sent and that uh, that was a company we talked to in the last year they told us that they go hey look we got a real use for what you're doing because here's what happened to us here very recently yeah i'm not talking about bobbleheads and stuff i'm I'm talking about you know you're building something that one might have intellectual property attached to it, you know or, or trade secret or uh you know it's got uh you know, if you're building a part for an airplane, you don't want it falling out of the sky, right? So, the, the, or an EV. I mean, just think about if you if you had an electric vehicle and you're taking a data download for it, and every time you turn the turn signal on, it made a hard right turn instead of the turn signal light coming on, right? I mean, or drove in another direction. I mean, there's there's so many different ways you can corrupt things nowadays, and the path to figuring out how and why it was corrupted then becomes very obfuscated. And so, I mean, I, I use a this scenario often. I say, you know, let's say you're a powerful senator, you're on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and there's a big, important vote coming up, and you need to get a heart stint put in. Well, now they're 3D printing the stint that's going to go into you. What if somebody corrupted that file, the stint gets put into you, and now, now it fails. Or, you know, we've gone away from the t-shirt model for for uh, knee replacement. It used to be a small, medium, and large, and they cut your cut your bone to fit one of those. Now everything's made to you there's a, a jig made for the cut, the, the individual uh, joint is printed for you, the, the instruments for the doctor are printed for his hand. I mean, everything is individualized and hyper, hyper individualized, right? And the, the same holds true then, you know, with parts and, and other things they become at an asset level exploitable. And that's kind of what ends up happening. So
1: uh, I, think, I think the opportunity there, and the opportunity also to disrupt somebody's economy. Like if you look at something like the Gen X engines, this inclusion problem they have, and also just like MRO parts for aerospace, that there are false air, aircraft parts being made generally available, right, at the moment. Yeah, so so these are all issues that I think I think really would would um, you know that that super traceability all the time, always for everything. I think is something that the 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 would benefit a lot of areas. But but how does this implement? Are you hoping for like the Air Force to implement this in one go and then everyone has to? Or can I do it as a relatively small company? But how about my customers? How does that work? So
2: so where you are, the value chain directly impacts um, you know how you then exert it. So if you're the Air Force and say, if you want to participate in, in supplying spare parts to the Air Force, you have to use this process. That's easy cuz you're going to get on. A good example is uh, Walmart. Walmart said to lettuce growers, "Hey, if you want to sell lettuce at Walmart, you have to upload everything onto our blockchain so that we can track it in case there's a recall." You look at Mersk, they tried a similar thing, but they were in the middle of the supply chain. They were just providing transportation. It wasn't Foxconn saying, "If you want to provide to Foxconn, you have to be on our blockchain." Mersk was saying, "Hey, if you want to ride on Mersk, you have to be on our blockchain." They went, well, "Why don't I do that? I'll just go over to Costco and ride on there." Their blockchain, their shipping—you know, the China overseas shipping company. So where you are in the value chain really, really matters. Um, beyond that, you also have to look at—you know—what is the value creation? I look at five things when I look at a product. One is scalability. Two, interoperability. Three is any type of regulation or law, whether it's HIPAA or something that you might have to comply with. Four is value creation. You have to create value because people are—you know—in business today doing fine. Uh, with whatever system they're using. So you need to create value that will then do number five, which is behavior modification, which will cause them to, one, want to move to the new system, or two, some law or regulation pushes them to the new system, or three, the value chain pushes them to that new system. But, But those are the areas that you have to look at to be successful with these types of product developments.
1: Okay, okay and then where are you guys now in your development i mean are you mature enough to be shipping this thing or oh, yeah. how many like are the customers and what can you tell us about that
2: yeah so we uh you know we have an enterprise solution right now most of those will be bespoke uh, and mostly internal use that's available and then we just finished the development of our SaaS solution so it's 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 i'll say it's coming out of the box now and all we're doing is connecting up the you know the the payment rail and uh The subscription and some of the other pieces that go with it so that'll be out to our initial customers here um, by the end of this month for them to test it and then we'll do it through about i don't know 30 60 days worth of testing and then it'll be available to the masses but uh, you know again it's not just for moving parts a really good use case is 3d printed parts but another really good use case is you know think about you don't want to move things anymore by email and this is a point to point delivery system Um, you know, when you start moving sensitive information, whether it's financial data, legal data, IP or whatever, you want to be able to, again, push it to the person that's supposed to receive it, ensure that they get exactly that, no manipulation takes place. So so the legal environments, the uh, legal use cases, the financial use cases, and just what I'll call a trusted global post. Post offices around the world are irrelevant. I get stuff in the post office that are political flyers or something, nothing that matters to me. Why? Because if I want to send something and I want to make sure that you get exactly what I sent. I sent it to you in an overnight mailer, whether it's UPS, DHL, whatever. Because when it comes to you, we can track it. When it comes to you, you see that it hasn't been opened. You can open the package, pull the paper out, and you can trust that that's exactly what I sent you. So so trying to then develop that same ecosystem in a Web3 environment, I create a digital envelope. You stuff it with your data. You now have the providence, the, all the pieces I talked about, protection, detection, providence. And then you open it on the other side. You, you can now create that. Instead of getting it overnight, you can now get it in a matter of minutes. So not everybody needs that, but there is plenty of market space that would, would like something like that. Um, so, so that's kind of the areas we're hitting right now. Cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, the one thing that, that I'm really excited about is this whole idea. You alluded to this, like making MRO spare parts for Air Force or for, for, for frontline uh, troops and stuff like that at the the forward operating area. like. How to me this is critical because to me it really means that the helicopter. I mean, my my favorite example. I said this ten times on this podcast already. Is this tank killer Apache helicopter, best helicopter in the world, all of a sudden gets knocked out of, uh, you know, Desert Storm one because of dust, essentially dust, not some mega missile or something. Dust. So, so the idea to me is is producing these spare parts, also iteratively upgrading that thing. At the forward operating base, is to me as, as like kind of like the holy grail of this. And like, how realistic is this though? I mean, because like, are it's we there yet? Because we don't. Yeah, yeah. we are. We we are there yet. And
2: here's why. So I flew a lot in Desert Storm One. Uh, so you know, you'd have airplanes flying up next to you. They'd have speed tape on them, or. Or pieces of tin riveted on them, or whatever it might be, because they, they could do just good enough repairs. Now, fast forward to the Navy. You know, a few years back, they made a part for a V twenty two. That part was three D printed. It was a near net shape, uh, different material. It was titanium instead of aluminum. Certified for fifty hours. Uh, you know, required a lot of machining. They certified fifty hours, and they flew. They flew it and claimed victory with three D printed part. Now, come to twenty twenty three, the Marines are deploying with three D print labs, printers, and Connexes. They're making parts where they need. In 2020, uh, Lockheed called me up and said, hey, come talk to us. I'm like, why? Well, it turns out the Marines had an F-35. It's a $120 million plane. It needed a little stopper on the gear door to allow it to sit flush. That stopper was broken. They asked Lockheed to send it to them. They go, well, you got to buy a whole new gear door. It's 80000 bucks, and it's going to take us six weeks to get it to you. And they're like, well, we want to fly this airplane tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, sorry. So the Marines, being Marines, they got a Balmer printer. They 3D printed near net shape to what it looked like, put a couple holes in it, set the plane on jack stands, attached it to the door, cycled a few times, ran their hand over it and said, ooh, that's smooth. That looks like it works. And then flew the airplane. It cost them six bucks to make the part, right? Not 80,000. Lockheed's head exploded. So they called us down there and said, hey, you know, talk to us about digital supply chain. What parts should I make? And I said, only make the part that your customer wants. And they're like, well, they want everything. And I said, exactly. The rub or the tension exists with, who pays for the NRE when it wasn't developed to be 3D printed, right? So, so a lot of these parts not developed to be 3D printed. Somebody has to do the NRE to actually go through and you know, um, do the, the the first article testing and all that sort of stuff once it goes through 3D printing. Now, Lockheed, since then, is you know, they're looking to conjoin a lot of parts and get the logistics billed out. So, so there is some incentive out there, but the service themselves isn't incentivizing. The Air Force or the Navy, or the Marines isn't incentivizing. But you they're putting those printers on connexes and deploying with units now or they're on Navy ships and others. In 2016 I stood at MRO America and said we're gonna have 3D printer on every ship and submarine. And everybody just looked at me like you're crazy, you're smoking crack. And it was reported in Aviation Week. You can you can find it there. But that's kind of where the story started. We told our initial story of being able to make a part on an aircraft carrier, right? Being able to send those digits directly to the aircraft carrier and print a part. That then got people thinking now, again, seven years ago, now people are in that space. We we're you know early uh, thought leaders in the space. But, but think about that disposable items, consumables to what you just said, you know, maybe I just need a flush handle on a toilet. Well, you know what? It makes your life a lot more, a lot less miserable if you can flush your toilet, you know, and, and so on. So there's many, many things you can do. There was a case, uh, in at an air force base where they need to put a new drain plug in a shower at the gym and they're going to have to rip up the whole shower floor because they didn't have this drain plug anymore. And somebody goes, well, why don't we just 3d print one? And they made it and put it in there. They didn't have to rip up the floor, but, but it's somebody at the level at that unit that said, well, why don't we just make one, you know, in, in the Air Force in particular, they have these things called spark tanks at every base where there are people are coming together with good ideas and they're innovating. And, you know, 3D printing has enabled a lot of these because, as you know, you can fast prototype and do many, many things and, and a lot of ideation around uh, 3D printing. But yeah, it's here. It's here now. Um, it needs to get to scale and it needs to get to a point where we can accept just good enough the commander on the ground, as I mentioned before, he's got the best view of what's going on, can say, yep, that airplane's got to fly a critical mission. I know I don't have titanium, but I got stainless steel here because why? Titanium is explosive. I don't use that. I got stainless steel here. I can make that part, and I'll certify it for one flight home. I'll certify it for this mission. I'll certify it for 50 hours until I can get the real part here. But, but that creates a whole other dynamic that then increases your readiness, your lethality. Um, so so that's the environment that we're
1: getting to. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. I think it's also exciting. Also, the Navy is putting polymer printing on every ship and a metal printer on every aircraft carrier. So totally proved 100% right on that one. And, and I think also the interesting thing I saw uh, approving that first, they tried to get as many of these part numbers approved, like the NATO part numbers, right? That's going really slow. And now they just said, these 25% of the parts of the ship are improvisational. And the commander of the ship, she can just say yes or no on the part. So that means that then all of a sudden, the actual the shipboard engineering guys can make that determination, like you were saying. They can decide when to imp- improvise. Now, uh, the other thing is that I think there's a real opportunity to train now a lot of uh, U.S. Navy commanders and additive manufacturing and tolerances and, and, and FEA and stuff like this. Um, but the other thing is, I think that's really interesting because that, that duct tape thing, that improvisational thing, Uh, has been going on and now we get to formalize it throughout it
2: yeah and you know the navy and i just was talking to you know one of their leaders in 3d printing uh they just started a school which is their technical training school around 3d printing they're the first service to introduce that in their technical training because it's going to be as you mentioned fleet ride and the risk the acceptance of risk should be at the commander who's responsible for that asset it shouldn't be four thousand miles away and i got to go through 80 steps to some engineer sitting at a desk who goes i really don't know if we should accept that well he's not the guy who's you know, got to execute the mission. Right. So being able to put the acceptance of risk at the, at the appropriate level is very, very important. And it goes hand in hand with this. We fly airplanes all the time that have what's called an engineering disposition. There's something that's wrong with the airplane. Um, and the you know engineer at Boeing or whatever is right now said, hey, this, this and this. And if you do X, Y, Z, it should be fine. And then they sign it. Well, then you as a pilot have to accept that and go, OK, yeah, that looks good. I'm going to fly that. But airplanes have got write-ups, ships have got pages and pages of write-ups. It's just a matter of is it critical for the mission execution or not, right? So the airworthiness is what was slowing people down, right? They wanted to make something that was exactly like it um, you know, was traditionally manufactured on a CNC machine or, or whatever, or forge a cast. Um, but that person sitting at a desk, ground speed zero, who doesn't have an operational commander on his back because he's got troops in contact, you know, telling him, hey, got to get the asset there, got to get it there, right? And, and I'm not belittling their job. Their job is to make sure that we have, you know, safe ops, but um, there is risk involved in execution and, you know, having another tool to help mitigate that risk and enable your lethality and readiness, um, you know, it's going to go a long way. So this has got a very bright future. Now, again, we have to be able to go all the way from the digits, the ones and the zeros, to the execution, to the, you know, putting a part on the the, uh, aircraft. That's where we have to get. So, and Fortis, tools like Fortis is what's going to enable that.
1: Totally. I think, I think it's really good. I think it also means that they're going to need a kind of thingiverse, right? They're going to need a forces wide and also a different forces kind of thingiverse saying, this is a good enough solution that we've already tried. You can download it and this has got acceptance already. So you can go to a commander and say, look, the guys on the other, the baton ship already tried this. ta Or they've already tried a similar valve and this went wrong with it. So I think there's a huge uh, amount of thing. And I, what I like as well is there's also an interim option because there's this thing, I think they're doing this Apollo lab thing where they're actually having a lab where they're trying to replicate all the stuff going on in the vehicle, on the ship with the same printers, and they actually can test out this stuff. So there's actually, like in the Navy now, there's this Apollo lab they're called, I don't know. Uh, I think NASA did the same. They, have like, they had a copy of, the, of the, the shuttle or whatever device on Earth. And then if there was a, problem they would like replicate it and they're trying to do this with 3d printing as well so they're trying to say okay wait a minute if we would need to do a shower drain how would we do it and then you can get these guys that are real experts they're trying to get the part out they're not trying to approve it they're just trying to make a solution so i think that would be really valuable as well
2: but think about watching star trek and teleportation what is teleportation you know it's i can scan to print now right so i can scan to print i can push that across a system like fortis so i know that it's exactly the same files and the same information, and I can print it on the other side. Is that teleportation? That's about as close to teleportation as I think you can get. You're not moving the ones and zeros, the actual atoms of that that physical thing, but you're creating or replicating it on the other end right so so it is you know some sort of science fiction piece but it's so good I and mean, we did a uh, a scan to print project when i was at moog it was an f15 part it had a couple scratches on the part we could have after we scanned it we could have eliminated those scratches we could have taken them out you know the design but i said let's print it that way so we can show people how good these scanners are so we printed that part uh the replica and had the original part there that we scanned and we showed them side by side they were exactly the same the scratches the you know everything on there was the, exactly the same and people's heads exploded so you know so
1: that's good okay so james this is a really exciting episode i really really enjoyed your enthusiasm and all your experience It's absolutely wonderful
2: well i appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys and to You know, have the opportunity to talk about where the future is going with added manufacturing and Fortis and tools like that. I I would add at the end, you know, at at some point, you know, we got to look away from the print head and start looking further upstream to the initial designs. And, you know, how then we make a uh, provide congruency all the way down to the design to to what's being made And tools like Fortis. I think will solve that problem.
1: Totally. Totally. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Always a fascinating time. Thank you, George. And thank you guys uh, for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day.
0: You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.